Chapter Two of The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marsitich. June 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. Chapter the Second the last war section one viewed from the standpoint of a sane and ambitious social order it is difficult to understand and it would be tedious to follow the motives that plunged mankind into the war that fills the histories of the middle decades of the twentieth century it must always be remembered that the political structure of the world at the time was everywhere extraordinarily behind the collective intelligence that is, the central fact of that history. For two hundred years, there had been no great changes in political or legal methods and pretensions. The utmost change had been a certain shifting of boundaries and slight readjustment of procedure, while in nearly every other aspect of life, there had been fundamental revolutions, gigantic releases, and an enormous enlargement of scope and outlook. The absurdities of courts and the indignities of representative parliamentary government, coupled with the opening of vast fields of opportunity in other directions, had withdrawn the best intelligences more and more from public affairs. The ostensible governments of the world in the twentieth century were following in the wake of the ostensible religions. They were ceasing to command the services of any but second-rate men. After the middle of the 18th century, there are no more great ecclesiastics upon the world's memory. After the opening of the 20th, no more statement. Everywhere one finds an energetic, ambitious, short-sighted, commonplace types in the seats of authority, blind to the new possibilities and litigiously reliant upon the traditions of the past. Perhaps the most dangerous of those outworn traditions were the boundaries of the various sovereign states, and the conception of a general predominance in human affairs on the part of some one particular state. The memory of the empires of Rome and Alexander squatted, an unlaid carnivorous ghost, in the human imagination. It bored into the human brain like some grisly parasite, and filled it with disordered thoughts and violent impulses. For more than a century, the French system exhausted its vitality in belligerent convulsions, and then the infection passed to the German-speaking peoples, who were the heart and center of Europe, and from them onward to the Slavs. Later ages were to store and neglect the vast, insane literature of this obsession, the intricate treaties, the secret agreements, the infinite knowingness of the political writer, the cunning refusals to accept plain facts, the strategic devices, the tactical maneuvers, the records of mobilizations and counter-mobilizations, it ceased to be credible almost as soon as it ceased to happen. But in the very dawn of the new age, their state craftsmen sat with their historical candles burning, and, in spite of strange new reflections and unfamiliar lights and shadows, still wrangling and planning to rearrange the maps of Europe and the world. 
it was to become a matter for subtle inquiry how far the millions of men and women outside the world of these specialists sympathized and agreed with their portentous activities one school of psychologists inclined to minimize this participation but the balance of evidence goes to show that there were massive responses to these suggestions of the belligerent schemer primitive man had been a fiercely combative animal innumerable generations had passed their lives in tribal warfare and the weight of tradition the example of history the ideals of loyalty and devotion fell in easily enough with the incitements of the international mischief-maker the political ideas of the common man were picked up haphazard there was practically nothing in such education as he was given that was ever intended to fit him for citizenship as such that conception only appeared indeed with the development of modern state ideas and it was therefore a comparatively easy matter to fill his vacant mind with the sounds and fury of exasperated suspicion and national aggression for example barnet describes the london crowd as noisily patriotic when presently his battalion came up from the depot to london to entrain for the french frontier he tells of children and women and lads and old men cheering and shouting of the streets and rows hung with the flags of the allied powers of a real enthusiasm even among the destitute and unemployed the labor bureaus were now partially transformed into enrollment offices and were centers of hotly patriotic excitement at every convenient place upon the line on either side of the channel tunnel there were enthusiastic spectators and the feeling in the regiment if a little stiffened and darkened by grim anticipations, was none the less warlike. But all this emotion was the fickle emotion of minds without established ideas. It was with most of them, Barnet says, as it was with himself, a natural response to collective movement and to martial sounds and colors, and the exhilarating challenge of vague dangers and people had been so long oppressed by the threat and preparation for war that its arrival came with an effect of positive relief section two the plan of campaign of the allies assigned the defense of the lower meuse to the english and the troop trains were run direct from the various british depots to the points in the ardans where they were intended to entrench themselves most of the documents bearing upon the campaign were destroyed during the war from the first scheme of the allies seems to have been confused but it is highly probable that the formation of an aerial park in this region from which attacks could be made upon the vast industrial plant of the lower rhine and a flanking raid through holland upon the german naval establishments at the mouth of the alba were integral parts of the original project nothing of this was known to such pawns in the game as barnet and his company whose business it was to do what they were told by the mysterious intelligences at the direction of things in paris to which the city the whitehall staff had also been transferred from first to last these directing intelligences remained mysterious to the body of the army 
veiled under the name of orders. There was no Napoleon, no Caesar to embody enthusiasm. Barnet says, We talked of them. They are sending us to Luxembourg. They are going to turn the Central European right. Behind the veil of this vagueness, the little group of more or less worthy men, which constituted headquarters, was beginning to realize the enormity of the thing it was supposed to control. In the great hall of the war control, whose windows looked out across the Seine to the Trocadero, and the palaces of the western quarter, a series of big-scale relief maps were laid out upon tables to display the whole seat of war, and the staff officers of the control were continually busy shifting the little blocks which represented the contending troops, as the reports and intelligence came drifting into the various telegraphic bureaus in the adjacent rooms. In other smaller apartments, there were maps of a less detailed sort, upon which, for example, the reports of the British Admiralty and of the Slav commanders were recorded as they kept coming to hand. Upon these maps, as upon chessboards, Marshal Dubois, in consultation with General Virard and the Earl of Delhi, was to play the great game for world supremacy against the Central European powers. Very probably he had a definite idea of his game. Very probably he had a coherent and admirable plan. But he had reckoned without a proper estimate either of the new strategy of aviation or of the possibilities of atomic energy that Holston had opened for mankind. While he planned entrenchments and invasions and a frontier war, the Central European generalship was striking at the eyes and the brain. And while, with a certain diffident hesitation, he developed his gambit that night upon the lines laid down by Napoleon and Moltke, his own scientific corpse in a state of mutinous activity, was preparing a blow for Berlin. Those old fools! was the key in which the scientific corps was thinking. The war control in Paris, on the night of July the 2nd, was an impressive display of the paraphernalia of scientific military organization, as the first half of the 20th century understood it. To one human being, at least, the consulting commanders had the likeness of world-wielding gods. She was a skilled typist capable of nearly sixty words a minute, and she had been engaged, in relay, with other similar women, to take down orders in duplicate, and hand them over to the junior officers in attendance, to be forwarded and filed. There had come a lull, and she had been sent out from the dictating room to take the air upon the terrace, before the great hall, and to eat such scanty refreshment as she had brought with her until her services were required again. From her position upon the terrace, this young woman had a view not only of the wide sweep of the river below her, and all the eastward side of Paris from the Arc de Triomphe to St. Cloud, great blocks and masses of black or pale darkness with pink and golden flashes of illumination, and endless interlacing bands of dotted lights under a still and starless sky, but also the whole spacious interior of the great hall, 
with its slender pillars and gracious arching and clustering lamps, was visible to her. There, over a wilderness of tables, lay the huge maps, done on so large a scale that one might fancy them small countries. The messengers and attendants went and came perpetually, altering, moving the little pieces that signified hundreds and thousands of men, and the great commander and his two consultants stood amidst all these things and near where the fighting was nearest, scheming, directing. They had but to breathe a word, and presently away there, in the world of reality, the punctual myriads moved. Men rose up and went forward and died. The fate of nations lay behind the eyes of these three men. Indeed, they were like gods. Most godlike of the three was Dubois. It was for him to decide. The others, at most, might suggest. Her woman's soul went out to this grave, handsome, still, old man, in a passion of instinctive worship. Once she had taken words of instruction from him direct, she had awaited them in an ecstasy of happiness and fear, for her exaltation was made terrible by the dread that some error might dishonor her. She watched him now through the glass, with all the unpenetrating minuteness of an impassioned woman's observation. He said little, she remarked. He looked but little at the maps. The tall Englishman beside him was manifestly troubled by a swarm of ideas, conflicting ideas. He craned his neck at every shifting of the little red, blue, black, and yellow pieces on the board, and wanted to draw the commander's attention to this and that. Dubois listened, nodded, emitted a word, and became still again, brooding like the national eagle. His eyes were so deeply sunken under his white eyebrows that she could not see his eyes. His mustache overhung the mouth from which those words of decision came. Virard, too, said little. He was a dark man with a drooping head and melancholy, watchful eyes. He was more intent upon the French right, which was feeling its way now through Alsace to the Rhine. He was, she knew, an old colleague of Dubois. He knew him better, she decided. He trusted him more than this unfamiliar Englishman. Not to talk to remain impassive and as far as possible in profile. These were the lessons that old Dubois had mastered years ago. To seem to know all, to betray no surprise, to refuse to hurry, itself a confession of miscalculation. By attention to these simple rules, Dubois had built up a steady reputation from the days when he had been a promising junior officer, a still, almost abstracted young man, deliberate but ready. Even then, men had looked at him and said, He will go far. Through fifty years of peace, he had never once been found wanting, and at maneuvers his impassive persistence had perplexed and hypnotized and defeated many a more actively intelligent man. Deep in his soul, Dubois had hidden his one profound discovery about the modern art of warfare, the key to his career. And this discovery was that nobody knew, that to act, therefore, was to blunder, 
that to talk was to confess, and that the man who acted slowly and steadfastly, and above all silently, had the best chance of winning through. Meanwhile, one fed the men. Now, by this same strategy, he hoped to shatter those mysterious unknowns of the Central European Command. Delhi might talk of a great flank march through Holland, with all the British submarines and hydroplanes and torpedo craft pouring up the Rhine in support of it. Virard might crave for brilliance with the motor bicycles, aeroplanes, and ski men among the Swiss mountains and a sudden swoop upon Vienna. The thing was to listen, and to wait for the other side to begin experimenting. It was all experimenting. And meanwhile he remained in profile, with an air of assurance, like a man who sits in an automobile after the chauffeur has had his directions. And every one about him was the stronger and surer for that quiet face, that air of knowledge and unruffled confidence, the clustering lights threw a score of shadows of him upon the maps, great bunches of him, versions of commanding presence, lighter or darker, dominated the field and pointed in every direction. Those shadows symbolized his control. When a messenger came from the wireless room to shift this or that piece in the game, to replace, under amended reports, one Central European regiment by a score, to draw back or thrust out or distribute this or that force of the allies, the marshal would turn his head and seem not to see, or look and nod slightly, as a master nods who approves a pupil's self-correction. Yes, that's better. How wonderful he was, thought the woman at the window. How wonderful it all was. This was the brain of the Western world. This was Olympus with the warring earth at its feet. And he was guiding France, France so long a resentful exile from imperialism, back to her old predominance. It seemed to her beyond the desert of a woman that she should be privileged to participate. It is hard to be a woman, full of the stormy impulse to personal devotion, and to have to be impersonal, abstract, exact, punctual. She must control herself. She gave herself up to fantastic dreams, dreams of the days when the war would be over and victory enthroned. Then, perhaps, this harshness, this armor would be put aside and the gods might unbend. Her eyelids drooped. She roused herself with a start. She became aware that the night outside was no longer still, that there was an excitement down below on the bridge, and a running in the street, and a flickering of searchlights among the clouds from some high place beyond the Trocadero. And then the excitement came surging up past her, and invaded the hall within. One of the sentinels from the terrace stood at the upper end of the room, gesticulating and shouting something. And all the world had changed, a kind of throbbing. She couldn't understand. It was as if all the water pipes and concealed machinery and cables of the ways beneath were beating, as pulses beat. And about her blew something like a wind, a wind that was dismay. Her eyes went to the face of the marshal as a frightened child might look towards its mother. He was still serene. 
He was frowning slightly, she thought, but that was natural enough. For the Earl of Delhi, with one hand gauntly gesticulating, had taken him by the arm, and was all too manifestly disposed to drag him towards the great door that opened on the terrace, and Virard was hurrying towards the huge windows, and doing so in the strangest of attitudes, bent forward and with eyes upturned. Something up here? And then it was as if thunder broke overhead. The sound struck her like a blow. She crouched together against the masonry and looked up, she saw three black shapes swooping down through the torn clouds, and from a point a little below two of them, there had already started curling trails of red. Everything else in her being was paralyzed. She hung through moments that seemed infinities, watching those red missiles whirl down towards her. She felt torn out of the world. There was nothing else in the world but a crimson-purple glare and sound, deafening, all-embracing, continuing sound. Every other light had gone out about her, and against this glare hung slanting walls, pirouetting pillars, projecting fragments of cornices, and a disorderly flight of huge angular sheets of glass. She had an impression of a great ball of crimson-purple fire, like a maddened living thing that seemed to be whirling about very rapidly amidst a chaos of falling masonry, that seemed to be attacking the earth furiously, that seemed to be burrowing into it like a blazing rabbit. She had all the sensations of waking up out of a dream. She found she was lying face downward on a bank of mold and that a little rivulet of hot water was running over one foot. She tried to raise herself and found her leg was very painful. She was not clear whether it was night or day, nor where she was. She made a second effort, wincing and groaning, and turned over and got into a sitting position and looked about her. Everything seemed very silent. She was, in fact, in the midst of a vast uproar, but she did not realize this because her hearing had been destroyed. At first, she could not join on what she saw to any previous experience. She seemed to be in a strange world, a soundless, ruinous world, a world of heaped broken things, and it was lit, and somehow this was more familiar to her mind than any other fact about her, by a flickering, purplish-crimson light. Then close to her, rising above a confusion of debris, she recognized the trocadero. It was changed. Something had gone from it, but its outline was unmistakable. It stood out against a streaming, whirling uprush of red-lit steam, and with that she recalled Paris and the Seine and the warm, overcast evening and the beautiful, luminous organization of the war control. She drew herself a little way up the slope of earth on which she lay, and examined her surroundings with an increasing understanding. The earth on which she was laying projected like a cape into the river. Quite close to her was a brimming lake of dammed-up water, from which these warm rivulets and torrents were trickling. Wisps of vapor came into circling existence a foot or so from its mirror surface. 
near at hand and reflected exactly in the water, was the upper part of a familiar-looking stone pillar. On the side of her, away from the water, the heaped ruins rose steeply in a confused slope up to a glaring crest. Above and reflecting this glare, towered pillowed masses of steam rolling swiftly upward to the zenith. It was from this crest that the livid glow that lit the world about her proceeded, and slowly her mind connected this mound with the vanished buildings of the war control. My, she whispered, and remained with staring eyes quite motionless for a time, crouching close to the warm earth. Then presently this dim, broken human thing began to look about it again. She began to feel the need of fellowship. She wanted to question, wanted to speak, wanted to relate her experience, and her foot hurt her atrociously. There ought to be an ambulance. A little gust of querulous criticisms blew across her mind. This surely was a disaster. Always after a disaster, there should be ambulances and helpers moving about. She craned her head. There was something there, but everything was so still. Monsieur, she cried. Her ears, she noted, felt queer, and she began to suspect that all was not well with them. It was terribly lonely in this chaotic strangeness, and perhaps this man, if it was a man, for it was difficult to see, might for all his stillness be merely insensible. He might have been stunned. The leaping glare beyond sent a ray into his corner, and for a moment every little detail was distinct. It was Marshal Dubois. He was lying against a huge slab of the war map, to it there stuck, and from it there dangled little wooden objects, the symbols of infantry and cavalry and guns, as they were disposed upon the frontier. He did not seem to be aware of this at his back. He had an effect of inattention, not indifferent attention, but as if he were thinking. She could not see the eyes beneath his shaggy brows, but it was evident he frowned. He frowned slightly. He had an air of not wanting to be disturbed. His face still bore that expression of assured confidence, that conviction that if things were left to him, France might obey in security. She did not cry out to him again, but she crept a little nearer. A strange surmise made her eyes dilate. With a painful wrench, she pulled herself up, so that she could see completely over the intervening lumps of smashed-up masonry. Her hand touched something wet, and after one convulsive movement she became rigid. It was not a whole man there. It was a piece of a man, the head and shoulders of a man that trailed down into a ragged darkness and pool of shining black. And even as she stared, the mound above her swayed and crumpled, and a rush of hot water came pouring over her. Then it seemed to her that she was dragged downward. Section 3 When the rather brutish young aviator, with the bullet head and the black hair close-cropped and brass, who was in charge of the French Special Scientific Corps, heard presently of this disaster to the war control, 
he was so wanting in imagination in any sphere but his own that he laughed small matter to him that paris was burning his mother and father and sister lived at caudebay and the only sweetheart he had ever had and it was poor love-making then was a girl in rouen he slapped his second in command on the shoulder now he said there's nothing on earth to stop us going to berlin and giving them tit for tat strategy and reasons of state they're over come along my boy and we'll just show these old women what we can do when they've let us have our heads he spent five minutes telephoning and then he went out into the courtyard of the chateau in which he had been installed and shouted for his automobile things would have to move quickly because there was scarcely an hour and a half before dawn he looked at the sky and noted with satisfaction a heavy bank of clouds athwart the pallid east he was a man of infinite shrewdness and his material and airplanes were scattered all over the countryside stuck away in barns covered with hay hidden in woods a hawk could not have discovered any of them without coming within reach of a gun but that night he only wanted one of the machines and it was handy and quite prepared under a tarpaulin between two ricks not a couple of miles away he was going to berlin with that and just one other man two men would be enough for what he meant to do he had in his hands the black compliment to all those other gifts science was urging upon unregenerate mankind the gift of destruction and he was adventurous rather than a sympathetic type he was a dark young man with something negroid about his gleaming face he smiled like one who is favored and anticipates great pleasures there was an exotic richness a chuckling flavor about the voice in which he gave his orders and he pointed his remarks with the long finger of a hand that was hairy and exceptionally big we'll give them tit for tat he said we'll give them tit for tat no time to lose boys and presently over the cloud banks that lay above westphalia and saxony the swift airplane with its atomic engine as noiseless as a dancing sunbeam and its phosphorescent gyroscopic compass flew like an arrow to the heart of the central european hosts it did not soar very high it skimmed a few hundred feet above the bank darkness of cumulus that hid the world ready to plunge at once into their wet obscurities should some hostile flyer range into vision the tense young steersman divided his attention between the guiding stars above and the level tumbled surfaces of the vapor strata that hid the world below over great spaces those banks lay even as a frozen lava flow and almost as still and then they were rent by ragged areas of translucency pierced by clear chasms so that dim patches of the land below gleamed remotely through abysses once he saw quite distinctly the plan of a big railway station outlined in lamps and signals and once the flames of a burning rick showed livid through a boiling drift of smoke on the side of some great hill but if the world was masked it was alive with sounds 
Up through that vapor floor came the deep roar of trains, the whistles of horns of motor cars, a sound of rifle fire away to the south, and as he drew near his destination the crowing of cocks. The sky above the indistinct horizons of this cloud sea was at first starry and then paler with a light that crept from north to east as the dawn came on. The Milky Way was invisible in the blue, and the lesser stars vanished. The face of the adventurer at the steering wheel, darkly visible ever and again by the oval greenish glow of the compass face, had something of that firm beauty which all concentrated purpose gives, and something of the happiness of an idiot child that has at last got hold of the matches. His companion, a less imaginative type, sat with his legs spread wide over the long coffin-shaped box, which contained in its compartments the three atomic bombs, the new bombs that would continue to explode indefinitely, in which no one so far had ever seen in action. Hitherto carolinium, their essential substance, had been tested only in almost infinitesimal quantities within steel chambers embedded in lead. Beyond the thought of great destruction slumbering in the black spheres between his legs, and a keen resolve to follow out very exactly the instructions that had been given him, the man's mind was a blank. His aquiline profile against the starlight expressed nothing but a profound gloom. The sky below grew clearer as the central European capital was approached. So far they had been singularly lucky, and had been challenged by no airplanes at all. The frontier scouts they must have passed in the night. Probably these were mostly under the clouds. The world was wide, and they had luck in not coming close to any soaring sentinel. Their machine was painted a pale gray that lay almost invisibly over the cloud levels below. But now the east was flushing with the near ascent of the sun. Berlin was but a score of miles ahead, and the luck of the Frenchman held. By imperceptible degrees the clouds below dissolved. Away to the northeastward, in a cloudless pool of gathering light, and with all its nocturnal illuminations still blazing, was Berlin. The left finger of the steersman verified roads and open spaces below upon the mica-covered square of map that was fastened by his wheel. There in a series of lake-like expansions was the havel away to the right. Over by those forests must be Spandau. There the river split about the Potsdam Island, and right ahead was Charlottenburg, cleft by a great thoroughfare that fell like an indicating beam of light straight to the imperial headquarters. There, plain enough, was the Tiergarten. Beyond rose the imperial palace, and to the right those tall buildings, those clustering beflagged, bemastered roofs, must be the offices in which the central European staff was housed. It was all coldly clear and colorless in the dawn. He looked up suddenly as a humming sound grew out of nothing and became swiftly louder. Nearly overhead a German airplane was circling down from an immense height to challenge him. He made a gesture with his left arm to the gloomy man behind, 
and then gripped his little wheel with both hands, crouched over it, and twisted his neck to look upward. He was attentive, tightly strung, but quite contemptuous of their ability to hurt him. No German alive, he was assured, could outfly him, or indeed any one of the best Frenchmen. He imagined they might strike at him as a hawk strikes, but they were men coming down out of the bitter cold up there, in a hungry, spiritless morning mood. They came slanting down like a sword slung by a lazy man, and not so rapidly, but that he was able to slip away from under them and get between them and Berlin. They began challenging him in German with a megaphone, when they were still perhaps a mile away. The words came to him, rolled up into a mere blob of hoarse sound. Then, gathering alarm from his grim silence, they gave chase and swept down, a hundred yards above him perhaps, and a couple of hundred behind. They were beginning to understand what he was. He ceased to watch them and concentrated himself on the city ahead, and for a time the two airplanes raced. A bullet came through the air by him, as though someone was tearing paper. A second followed. Something tapped the machine. It was time to act. The broad avenues, the park, the palaces below, rushed widening out nearer and nearer to them. Ready, said the steersman. The gaunt face hardened to grimness, and with both hands the bomb-thrower lifted the big atomic bomb from the box and steadied it against the side. It was a black sphere, two feet in diameter. Between its handles was a little celluloid stud, and to this he bent his head until his lips touched it. Then he had to bite in order to let the air in upon the inductive. Sure of its accessibility, he craned his neck over the side of the airplane and judged his pace and distance. Then very quickly he bent forward, bit the stud, and hoisted the bomb over the side. Round, he whispered inaudibly. The bomb flashed blinding scarlet in mid-air and fell, a descending column of blaze eddying spirally in the mist of a whirlwind. Both the airplanes were tossed like shuttlecocks, hurled high and sideways and the steersman with gleaming eyes and set teeth found in a great banking curves for a balance both the airplanes were tossed like shuttlecocks hurled high and sideways and the steersman with gleaming eyes and set teeth fought in great banking curves for a balance the gaunt man clung tight with his hand and knees his nostrils dilated his teeth biting his lips. He was firmly strapped. When he could look down again, it was like looking down upon the crater of a small volcano. In the open garden before the imperial castle, a shuddering star of evil splendor spurted and poured up smoke and flame towards them like an accusation. They were too high to distinguish people clearly, or to mark the bomb's effect upon the building until suddenly the façade tottered and crumbled before the glare as sugar dissolves in water. The man stared for a moment, showed all his long teeth, and then staggered into the cramped standing position his straps permitted, hoisted out and bit another bomb, and sent it down after its fellow. 
the explosion came this time more directly underneath the airplane and shot it upward edgeways the bomb box tipped to the point of disgorgement and the bomb thrower was pitched forward upon the third bomb with his face close to its celluloid stud he clutched its handles and with a sudden gust of determination that the thing should not escape him bit its stud before he could hurl it over the monoplane was slipping sideways everything was falling sideways instinctively he gave himself up to gripping his body holding the bomb in its place then that bomb had exploded also and the steersman thrower and airplane were just flying rags and splinters of metal and drops of moisture in the air and a third column of fire rushed eddying down upon the doomed buildings below section four never before in the history of warfare had there been a continuing explosive indeed up to the middle of the twentieth century the only explosives known were combustibles whose explosiveness was due entirely to their instantaneousness and these atomic bombs which science burst upon the world that night were strange even to the men who used them those used by the allies were lumps of pure carolinum painted on the outside with unoxidized cydonator inducive enclosed hermetically in a case of membranium a little celluloid stud between the handles by which the bomb was lifted was arranged so as to be easily torn off and admit air into the inducive which at once became active and set up radioactivity in the outer layer of the carolinum sphere this liberated fresh inducive and so in a few minutes the whole bomb was a blazing continual explosion the central european bombs were the same except that they were larger and had a more complicated arrangement for animating the inducive always before in the development of warfare the shells and rockets fired had been but momentarily explosive they had gone off in an instant once and for all and if there was nothing living or valuable within reach of the concussion and the flying fragments then they were spent and over but carolinum which belonged to the beta group of hillslop's so-called suspended degenerator elements once its degenerative process had been induced continued a furious radiation of energy and nothing could arrest it of all hillslop's artificial elements carolinum was the most heavily stored with energy and the most dangerous to make and handle to this day it remains the most potent degenerator known what the earlier twentieth century chemists called its half period was seventeen days that is to say it poured out half of the huge store of energy in its great molecules in the space of seventeen days the next seventeen days emission was a half of that first period's outpouring and so on as with all radioactive substances this carolinum though every seventeen days its power is halved though constantly it diminishes towards the imperceptible is never entirely exhausted 
and to this day the battlefields and bombfields of that frantic time in human history are sprinkled with radiant matter, and so centers of inconvenient rays. What happened when the celluloid stud was opened was that the inducive oxidized and became active. Then the surface of the carolinum began to degenerate. This degeneration passed only slowly into the substance of the bomb. A moment or so after its explosion began, it was still mainly an inert sphere exploding superficially, a big inanimate nucleus wrapped in flame and thunder. Those that were thrown from airplanes fell in this state. They reached the ground still mainly solid, and, melting soil and rock in their progress, bored into the earth. There, as more and more of the carolinum became active, the bomb spread itself out into a monstrous cavern of fiery energy at the base of what became, very speedily, a miniature active volcano. The carolinum, unable to disperse, freely drove into and mixed up with the boiling confusion of molten soil and superheated steam, and so remained spinning furiously and maintaining an eruption that lasted for years or months or weeks, according to the size of the bomb employed and the chances of its dispersal. Once launched, the bomb was absolutely unapproachable and uncontrollable until its forces were nearly exhausted, and from the crater that burst open above it, puffs of heavy incandescent vapor and fragments of viciously punitive rock and mud, saturated with carolinum, and each a center of scorching and blistering energy, were flung high and far. Such was the crowning triumph of military science, the ultimate explosive that was to give the decisive touch to war.